is increasingly tech stacks starting to become anti-fragile, that they actually can gain value, that you can have a competitive advantage if you've designed your stack in a way that instead of being brittle to change, is actually open to change, allows you to add things relatively easily. Welcome to SaaS Connect, the SaaS Partnership Podcast, brought to you by the Cloud Software Association. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. So it's so great to be here with like an actual in-person audience. I just wanted to test to make sure that this is an in-person audience, if you don't mind taking this quick captcha. God, I hate those things. Okay. I want to start by traveling back in time. Way, way back in time. Any of you remember the movie War Games? Seen it? Should ask how many of you were alive when that movie was out, but I, I don't want the answer. So there's this thing of like these devices you would put telephones in to like dial into systems before like, you know, we were just able to like beam all of this stuff directly to our bodies. This was actually a thing. In the 80s and the early 90s, there were all these bulletin board systems that people launched. They'd run them in their like basements with all phone lines connected and people dialing in, hey, here's Snoopy again. And there were software companies that built software for these individuals to run these bulletin board systems. Uh, one of them was called the Major BBS by a company called Galactica. I know this whole picture is like some sort of like, wow, this is ancient museum. And back in those days, companies, software companies would communicate, as we do today, with our customers using newsletters. But, you know, I mean, this was like actual newsletter. Like, you had to print these things. You know, they had pages, paper. What a crazy thought. Now, I just want to say this is a moment of vulnerability for me for sharing this photo with you. A 23-year-old CEO at the time, this one BBS company. I just want to, like, quote something from this. 60 pages, I exclaimed. But with over 50 advertisements from third parties, we were actually turning people away to get this out. As a metaphor for the BBS industry, our once tiny customer newsletter has grown. You and I discovered a powerful tool. It's not even accurate to label it as bulletin board software. Our new box and brochure, yes, these were the days of boxes and brochures, tout the major BBS as an open platform for creating your own online service. There were a lot of competitors in the bulletin board system industry. Galacticom was ending up winning among all of them because we'd opened up a platform and had created this environment where all these third parties were building add-on software that platform. We were going to take over the world. But, you know, something kind of happened along the way and the BBS industry went away. So lesson number one, disruptive innovation happens. You can win an industry and an entire industry can go away. So at that point in time, at 24, 25 years old, I decided to go back to school. Lesson number two, one chapter closes, a new one always begins. Now, fast forward, I ended up at this intersection of marketing and technology in the early 2000s. And I started to see this phenomenon emerge of like these worlds of IT and marketing. I mean, you could have not have more opposite ends of the spectrum. But right, they were being like thrown together as companies were starting to really figure out digital and digital marketing. And so I spent a lot of time trying to persuade CMOs that they should have more technical people in the marketing department so that they could manage this new capability. And one of the things I did to help persuade these CMOs was I put together this chart. This was from 2011, just showing a variety of the different software applications that marketers were using at the time. And there were like 150 uh, products on this. 
which at the time seems like, oh my God, this is crazy. 150 marketing technology products. How will we ever keep track of them all? Hey, HubSpot was there in the early days too. And it kind of made the point, right? Like, oh wow, this marketing really is becoming a technology-powered discipline. I went back and I did another version of this a year later, and it had gone from 150 to like 350. Also, I tried to like figure out the categorization because the overlaps is it in this category or that category. I tried to do these weird Venn diagrams. What a total mess. So this was another lesson. Categorization is hard, right? Pricing, naming, categorization, hardest things in software. I took a break for a year. I came back in 2014. Now all of a sudden it had become a thousand solutions on this map. Kind of crazy. And at the time I remember a number of people saying, there is no way there's going to continue to be a thousand marketing technology solutions. And they were right, because the next year there were 2,000. Now here's where things, I have to admit, started to just get weird. I mean, people got kind of fascinated with these things. I mean, they were printing them out on these, these boards. They were like putting them out in the street. I, I don't know, it's like buy your white castle burger here, get your MarTech over there. I think the one lesson there was, wow, people really love ecosystems. Or maybe the real lesson there is, like, it's kind of hard to know what would go viral. If you had asked me at any point in time, like, hey, what you should do is you should put these really microscopic little logos on a piece of paper, well, the, that will never work. You know, and this was where we also started to see more and more pushback. I remember this one article uh, from the folks at CMS Wire. They had a few folks saying, oh, many of these 1,876 vendors will fold. Others will merge and be acquired, and the landscape will shrink. Industry players, oh, those industry players. Okay, well, this is the other thing. You know, you sort of get used to just, you know, in the press and in the wide world of Twitter and the internet and analysts. We're in a time of tremendous change. Everybody has opinions. You kind of just have to roll with this. And I think one of the things that I realized, and I know this is super scary, we're going to go into all of this in great detail, I promise, just kidding, is, you know, we tend to think linearly. And all these sort of patterns of like, well, of course, you know, a bunch of companies enter a space, they compete with each other, you know, the winners win, the losers lose, things consolidate. This is a true dynamic. The thing is, it's not the only dynamic. And so part of this post I put together, and if, yeah, you want to spend an hour over some sort of alcoholic beverage, you know, just Google MarTech system dynamics, trying to walk people through, like, okay, yes, there are all these things that are pulling away, you know, in consolidation, but there's all these things that are driving the expansion of it too. That software as an industry was fundamentally changing in some really wild ways. And to just briefly look at, you know, some of these things, obviously like software becoming easier to build, so much easier to build on cloud environments than it ever was back in the days of our own data centers. It's gotten a lot easier to sell software, not saying that selling is easy, but you know, SaaS is so much easier to sell than those days where we had to actually, well, you know, like ship people physical disks and persuade them to install them, uh, you know, on their servers. The environment has changed, right, as the world has gone digital, I think, right, you know, this is the Mark Andreessen software is eating the world. It is eating the world, and we are still, uh, we have a long ways to go still. And in the context of MarTech, like the scope of marketing was expanding too, right? I mean, there was a time where, yeah, marketing was, what was that Dilworth thing, like uh, liquor and guessing? You know, it was, you know, largely advertising communications, but the scope of marketing expanded tremendously over the digital environment. I mean, even today, you could argue it's still continuing to expand its scope, you know? And so all these things were sort of combining to, yes, there were consolidation forces at work in these ecosystems, but the expansion forces were outpacing them. So I guess my, uh, my lesson from that was system dynamics really do rule everything. 
just looking at things through linear models often misses a lot in today's environment. And yeah, every time I share that slide, all I can think of is like that scene from A Beautiful Mind where Russell Crowe's John Nash is like, yeah, here's all these papers and connecting this. I think my family started to get a bit concerned with me over that post. Anyways, picking back up, 2016 comes, and now we've gone from 2,000 to 3,800 solutions on this map. People are still printing them out. They just need larger pieces of paper. We need to have the image there so that people can see it to scale. Sean Gooden, the leader of marketing technology at Clorox at the time, a very tall man. Of course, we're still getting the feedback that, okay, well, yeah, shrinking financial markets will drive consolidation of MarTech. Consolidation is rampant in the 2016 marketing technology industry. I'm not, what's that thing from like Princess Bride? I don't think that word means what you think it means. Well, 2017 comes along and now it becomes around 5,000. So I get this great idea. Oh, it's like the Inc. 5,000. We should call this the MarTech 5,000. Boy, that was a big mistake. And I'll get to that in a minute. But like the other thing we started seeing is like people started creating landscapes of marketing technology that was based in different countries. Canada started, it's Canada's fault. You know, they came out with this one. And then, of course, like, you know, I mean, Finland is like producing, hey, these are all the Finnish uh, marketing technologies out there. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, MarTech is an Olympic sport. Who knew? 2017 actually was also the year uh, I joined HubSpot. Before that, I had been the uh, CTO and co-founder of a SaaS company of my own called Ion Interactive, made interactive software. Actually, a lot of our challenges were how do we get this specialized interactive content software to integrate? with all the major platforms such as Salesforce and HubSpot and Marketo. And so at the time, I'd show this landscape to you know, the leaders of a number of these companies. I'd always ask them the same question. It was a bit of a leading question, but I'd show them the landscape and be like, what do you see? And almost universally, the answer was something along the lines of some sort of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Like, oh yeah, that's all the stuff we're gonna crush. In fact, we use this slide to sell against it. We say there's all this crap out there, and what you really wanna just do is buy our product and we'll do it all for you. See how that had worked out. The very first CEO of a MarTech company that I got a different answer from was when I sat down with Brian Halligan. I showed him this landscape and I asked him, okay, what do you see? And without missing a beat, he said opportunity. That all this thriving innovation that was happening out there in MarTech it was kind of waiting for companies to really start to like harness that and turn that into a benefit, not a bug. And so one of the things I took away from this is we see what we want to see. We have these mental models of how we look at markets and boy, they can be really dangerous or they can be really great opportunities. You know, if your competitors have an older mental model and you're willing to look at things just a little bit differently. Meanwhile, the consolidation of MarTech story continues closer than you think. I'm not sure how close that was going to be because, yeah, in 2018, it was whew, up to 6,800. I'm still calling this thing the MarTech 5000 because I'm like doggedly refusing to change that brand name, which was just a terrible mistake because then in 2019, you know, it's now up to over 7,000 solutions. By the time we got to 2020, it was 8,000. We clearly started playing around with like different ways to like visualize this. I've, I've been told this looks a little bit like the Game of Thrones map. Maybe not unreasonably so. People gave up printing it out. There just wasn't large enough paper for it. So they're like, listen, we can get some you know, electron microscopes and we should be able to find what we're looking for there. I mean, whew, this is just a crazy amount of growth over what was a relatively short period of time, right? We're talking a 10 year time period. And I, we skipped 2021 because with the pandemic and everything, I needed a break. 
we're working on 2022. It's going to be released next Tuesday. I won't give you any spoilers on that, but if anyone wants to take a side bet, has it all consolidated down to 100 products? Let me know. 5,233% growth across this entire time period. Now, this is a lot about the supply. And I'd say the most common question I've been asked over 10 years is, is this a bubble? And I actually have come to believe, just based on the empirical data, that it's not a bubble, but it's something fundamentally structural in the software industry. Because this isn't about MarTech. I mean, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Jay McBain's wonderful map of, you know, all the channel software stack. But right, it's, you know, Nancy Nardin's created one for sales tech, thousands of products on that. Folks at CB Insights, like they publish one of these every week, it seems like. It's for HR, the restaurant tech ecosystem. There is a whole tech ecosystem around restaurants. It isn't just Grubhub. Financial advisors, you know, have a huge tech stack of things they look at. Residential real estate technology landscape. Oh, boy, yeah, I get tired just looking at these. Cannabis has a tech landscape. And I confess, there are moments where I'm like, did I possibly choose the wrong industry to map out? But all right. It's gotten to the point where people have now created software to help people create these crazy industry maps. So uh, yeah, I guess another lesson here is there's an app for everything out there. I'm waiting for the map of software to help you do the different ways of mapping industries. And then we will have, yeah, you know, the world ends. So I've come to refer to this as the great app explosion. And I just wanted to share with you a little bit about how I've come to see this. Um, you know, would love your feedback, other perspectives on this. But I think it's entirely relevant to us in partnerships and ecosystems, how we develop a mental model around this. Now, the folks at IDC have actually predicted over 500 million digital apps and services deployed in the cloud by the end of next year. First thought is, going to need a bigger boat. Now, granted, a portion of this, a relatively small portion of it, is commercially packaged software. Actually, Jay McBain uh, has one of the best estimates. He said there's around 175,000 actual SaaS companies in the world today. He's predicted it'll be close to a million by the time we get to 2027. But still, 500 million, there's 499 million others. A lot of them are custom apps. But this is starting to have a really interesting interplay with us in the commercial package software world too. Now, if we think about the software cloud, this really is a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, we have general purpose infrastructure, uh, you know, things such as the cloud platforms uh, with AWS and Google Cloud and Azure. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, all this highly custom business-specific logic, which is basically any app that any company builds on its own, including things like websites and mobile apps. But what's fascinating is, you know, between these, you know, on top of cloud platforms, you know, have a bunch of companies that specialize in providing API platforms, you know, like Twilio and Stripe and Auth0. And between cloud platforms and API platforms, right, they're not directly serving business users. They're enabling developers to create more and more software faster and faster and faster. You know, kind of at a layer above that, where we get into more business-specific logic is with app platforms. So this is things like, you know, HubSpot and Salesforce and Oracle. And most of the ones we, we know that certainly have interfaces for business users, but all of them now have APIs as well, too, for developers. And so when you get to all these specialist apps, and most of the marketing technology landscape consists of these like highly specialized apps that do one or two things incredibly well, they're now standing on the shoulders of all these cloud platforms, API platforms, and app platforms. Now what's fascinating is when you look at consolidation, consolidation is fiercest at the bottom end of the spectrum. I mean, there are basically four or five cloud platforms out there. 
you know, API platforms a little bit more and they grow up and you know, you get to specialist apps, custom apps, this is where it, you know, explodes. And this is not by accident. This is actually, in my opinion, the very nature, you know, of what is structural here is like the more consolidated these cloud platforms, API platforms and app platforms become, the more they facilitate the creation of more and more specialist apps and custom apps. App platforms in particular tend to be where now we also see the explosion of all these different marketplaces, where it's not just about building these apps or integrating them, but it's about helping customers discover them in context, right? I mean, it was uh, Android and Apple, you know, consolidating, you know, iOS and Android that allowed there to be millions and millions of apps built on top of them. We're still earlier in that journey in B2B software, but I think that is the journey we are on. And again, I've, I've shared a lot about the um, supply side of this, but it's the demand side too, right? I mean, these companies exist because people are buying this software. You know, there's now a bunch of these SaaS management platforms out there. The fact that there's software just to manage your SaaS stack speaks volumes. So one of them was Xylo. And so because they actually connect to all the apps you're using, they provide very accurate counts of how many apps are in a stack. You know, so this is uh, data from earlier this year from uh, Xylo, which is one of them, right? Between 1,000 and 5,000 employees, companies on average have 330 SaaS apps. In fact, uh, another way they visualized it that I thought was really cool was these things are dynamic. Like those, uh, you know, say 2,000 to, you know, 5,000 employee companies, on average, nine new SaaS apps coming online every 30 days. Pretty wild. People thoroughly undercount <laughs> the amount of apps in their life. You know, I, I can't tell you, anytime we get like a survey of someone is asked, how many apps do you use? And I'm like, oh, well, we use three. We use five. And then you connect them to like one of these SaaS management platforms that comes back like, no, actually you have about 400 SaaS subscriptions. They're like, oh, I didn't realize Canva was a software app. Yes, actually Canva is. But the crazy thing about this is, right, this is just the commercial side of it. You know, so there was a survey my friends at MarTech Alliance did uh, last year asking folks like, okay, what are you using for your customer and marketing data platform? 2.4% have no idea. 32% best of breed, 10% single vendor. This is kind of the age-old debate that we've been used to, right? You know, best of breed versus single vendor suite. Uh, and this is about the ratio that we usually see people talking about them in. Fascinating, 16% responded that they built their own. Even more fascinating, 38.5% said they're using a hybrid combination of commercial off-the-shelf solutions augmented by their own custom development, which if you combine those two together, over half of these companies are developing some sort of custom software inside their MarTech stack. Now, I've been told, well, that's mostly because it's all spreadsheets, which may be true. Hey, Excel was MarTech before there was MarTech. So I'm almost at the end here. I want to share with you a model that struck me in the past year about how things are starting to change in SaaS ecosystems and the way companies strategically think about this. And it's very much inspired by uh, Ben Thompson's aggregation theory that for years, the storyline in MarTech was consolidation, 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 all those headlines. I think the real story that's shaking out is no, it's not consolidation. It's aggregation and very much in a Ben Thompson way of thinking about it. Now, what's the difference between consolidation and aggregation, right? They kind of sound like the same thing. You know, well, consolidation is saying we're going to reduce this large set of things into a fewer number of things or just one. Winner takes all. Aggregation is a little bit different. It's about 
having this large variety of things out there, but having something that makes it actually easier to consume or access all those things through a single source. And of course, there's a ton of examples of this you know, out on the internet, social media platforms, highly consolidated, but they're aggregating millions of social media creators. You mentioned smartphone platforms, you know, millions of apps on a handful of platforms, data warehouse platforms, right? You know, what makes Snowflake, Databricks, things like this more valuable to you? Why the more data sources that you're connecting to it and the more consumers of that data that you're doing. They're aggregating this all across your business. CRM platforms, right? I'd argue like we're in the business of aggregating customer touch points that can be coming from dozens or hundreds of different software applications. And it's actually, you know, there's consolidation that tends to happen with these app platforms or other kinds of platforms, but it's almost always being achieved now by aggregating some sort of larger set of activity that's happening. It's not getting rid of those other things, it's harnessing it. Now, in my work at HubSpot and even before that, I've spent a lot of time thinking about integration. Usually when people say, hey, does product X integrate with product Y? The answer today is almost always yes, because there's probably some way you can connect these two things, but all integrations are not created equal. You know, one model I use is to sort of think about like, okay, well, there's aggregating data, and how much data you're sharing, is it bi-directional? On top of that, there's this idea of, well, there's aggregating workflow and logic, interactions like that. There's aggregating experience, uh, you know, like the example of Canva inside HubSpot. There's even, you know, integration from a governance layer. You know, like does integrating two products guarantee you certain SLAs? Does it meet certain compliance requirements? So it's been very exciting from an integration perspective to look at this. But it occurred to me that this is also about aggregating. Right? It's aggregating data, aggregating process, aggregating experience, both for employees and for customers, and ultimately aggregating control at the governance layer. Don't want to go too deep into this, but I want to just give you some examples to make this real. Right? Aggregating at the data layer is happening with data warehouses today, or specialized data platforms you know, for CDBs and DAMs, master data management. Could argue even shared spreadsheets are a kind of aggregating software. And workflow, of course, iPaaS and workflow automation, uh, robotic process automation, data pipelining and ETL, all these things have that property of aggregation that the more things you have to connect, actually the more value you're getting out of that aggregation platform. The UI level, we've seen this with collaboration tools, uh, you know, Teams and Slack, shared analytic tools, again, kind of like data warehouses, but at the UI level, you know, the more things you have available, the more value you're getting from it certainly in domain platforms like in CRM. Governance, I mentioned those SaaS management platforms. You get more value from a SaaS management platform the more SaaS tools you have in your stack. Privacy and data governance, same thing. Identity access management and so on. So this, this aggregation phenomenon is becoming real. And if you look at the companies that are succeeding wildly right now, they seem to increasingly have this aggregation mechanic happening. Now I'll end by saying this is not a simple thing. You know, what I was showing you here was this sort of horizontal aggregation, which is in some ways the easiest to consume. But traditionally, when we've been thinking about aggregation, we tend to think about it in a particular domain like sales and marketing or, you know, IT service management or ERP. And these platforms are interesting because they're very often trying to aggregate multiple layers, but within that particular domain. And very often now in tech stacks today, you see both of these dimensions in parallel. I don't think one is gonna win out over the other anytime soon, but the dance between these, I think is making things incredibly interesting, uh, you know, for the, those of us uh, in the ecosystem world. And I think where I would conclude is, 
we've made a really fundamental shift in software. It's still in progress, but you know, for a long time, software stacks were something that you just didn't change. I mean, certainly going back to the days of managing your own data center, right? Oh my God, whatever we do, don't add more software, don't change software. Because if you change software, it was like this house of cards that you, know, you pull the wrong one out and everything crumbles down. They were very fragile. But to borrow this idea of anti-fragility from Nassim Nicholas Taleb, what we're starting to see powered by this aggregation pattern is increasingly tech stacks starting to become anti-fragile, that they actually can gain value, that you can have a competitive advantage if you've designed your stack in a way that instead of being brittle to change, is actually open to change, allows you to add things relatively easily, you can outpace your competitors in this post-digital transformation world that we're now living in. The crowning lesson from all these things with ecosystems, you know, that I've seen back from the days in BBSs and how Galacticom was winning before it was crushed by the internet, to what we're now seeing in MarTech and all these other, you know, domains within the tech stack, is anti-fragile stacks they're gaining value from apps and more apps and data, and that these ecosystems are what make them anti-fragile. And so with that, I say thank you. All right, put your hands up. Let's get some questions. We've got time for a couple. So question about when you were running Ion Interactive. What was the biggest uh, challenge for you building partnerships? I mean, the biggest challenge with Ion Interactive was nobody, nobody was going to run their business on an interactive content platform. We were a specialist app. We were the quintessential specialist app. You know, we did something really amazing with, you know, making it easy for marketers to create all these campaigns for uh, things that would involve, you know, like quizzes or assessment tools or calculators, wild stuff like that. But if they couldn't get that data in real time into the systems that were the primary backbone of their organization, it was useless to them. And at the time, most of the platforms out there, there were a few exceptions, but most of the platforms were not really all that interested uh, in specialist app. They either felt like, oh, we'll just build this ourselves, or if it's not something that's worth us building ourselves, it's probably not worth it out there. That started to change. I'll give a, I mean, obviously Salesforce, you know, I think was one of the uh, smartest players in how they opened up their platform. Eventually, uh, John Miller, who was the uh, early VP of marketing at Marketo, you know, he really started to embrace that. Certainly HubSpot uh, came to embrace it as well too. I think today now we look at it and we see this everywhere, but boy, at the point in time, Ion was really trying to be a value add on top of platforms that weren't really ready to be platforms. That was really challenging. Hey, Scott. So a question and a challenge on anti-fragility. So the same data that says that enterprises have 600 apps, if they're really big, also says that the apps are turning over all the time. Churn is really high, you know, thousands of points of vulnerability. And if we're going to be anti-fragile, don't we really have to have good integration? I saw data on MarTech that said that the two most important variables in selecting MarTech were Internal integrations and external integrations is all about compatibility. And when I look at the state of the software industry, I see a fairly large number of shitty integrations or poor integrations. And so the poor CIO is looking at this going, holy shit, how do I manage this nightmare? So from your perspective, how important is it for software companies to figure out 
who they integrate with and how well they integrate and how important is it to start thinking about solutions in an end-to-end -end manner. Because if we don't do those two things, we're super fragile. I think you have to start with one fundamental question. Do you believe there's going to be more software in the world or less software in the world? Because if you believe there's going to just be more software in the world, then the simple, simple solution of saying, oh, can I just like compress all this into one app and I'll just be done? It's just, that's not going to be the world we live in. That being said, recognizing that if you believe we're going to be in a world where there's more and more software out there, you're absolutely right that the challenge then becomes things like integration. Frankly, I was talking on some of those aggregation platforms, the whole space around like data governance and data privacy tools that are trying to connect to all these apps, the SaaS management platforms themselves. You know, it is very much recognizing that we've got real challenges with all this diversity of software, right? And it's not just the diversity of these commercial apps, right? They're, they're being dwarfed, you know, by the amount of custom apps, you know, that are being built inside organizations as well, too. So again, kind of like Brian Halligan looked at that map and instead of fear, uncertainty, and doubt said, I see opportunity. I see opportunity there, too. I think we can get better on this on a lot of dimensions. I think platform companies can get much better in the way they support integrations and connect these ecosystems together. I think you're already seeing now new specialist apps, new startups that come to market. You know, they're no longer thinking about integration as an afterthought. They're thinking about how do we actually leverage these ecosystems of major platforms as our go-to-market or go-to-ecosystem, as I believe someone would say. You know, and then on top of that, these things like these aggregation platforms, you know, that even have a certain level of independence from any one platform, you know, and allow companies to be able to look across their entire stack and get better management. I don't know if where we are in the journey, we're probably 10%, 20%. You know, we've got a long way to go, but I think this is a huge opportunity from both the you know, technology that gets created here, but also the business models and the way in which we as partnerships and ecosystem leaders like help championing bringing this world closer together. Thank you for that question. Hey, Scott. Thanks for the talk. This is Danielle. I have a question for you about kind of your own perspective on what you've laid out to us. You've given us a really objective view of the great app explosion and how that brings about consolidation and aggregation. But I'm curious from like a customer perspective, is aggregation good for them? Is consolidation good for them? What's better? What is going to ultimately be good, bad or, or neutral about this explosion on the impact to customers? Yeah, and that's the right way to look at it. Ultimately, it's what matters to the customer. And, you know, Alan had cited, you know, we followed these feedbacks from, you know, marketing leaders for years who have said, listen, I love all this innovation. My number one challenge is getting this stuff to work better together. So I think one of the things that's really interesting, I didn't have time to put one of these other models in here, but, you know, I'd highly recommend looking at, you know, look up uh, Gartner's uh, pace layering model from ages ago. I mean, stacks. All apps in a stack are not created equal, you know, and there are definitely layers to this and things like your fundamental platforms become the things that you do not want to turn over on a frequent basis because these really need to be the foundations upon which other things are built. You know, as you go higher and higher up there, you get to things that can be very small apps, very specialized, can be very experimental. I think there's a lot of work to make it easier for customers to, within the ecosystems of particular platforms, be able to pull the right apps for the right needs they have, have it plug in in a way that's pretty much seamless and just works for them. And I know we're not there today, although 
I don't know, you know, I don't want to you know, plug uh, my own stuff here too much, but like inside the HubSpot ecosystem, there is a spectrum of integrations. There are some that, all right, they do a bit, but you're probably going to want to do more than what came out of the box. And there are some others that are just like beautifully tight. They just come in, they have the use cases ready to roll. It's just, you don't even think about it from a technical perspective. It's the actual experience that you hit the ground running with. I keep thinking of like the iPhone, like any, I mean, again, I know this is an oversimplified analogy, but you never hear people complaining about like, oh crap, I went to the app store and there's millions of apps. I can't deal with the pressure, you know, right? We're used to a world where, you know, we pick a phone platform and then we pick the different apps we want for what we need and they just plug in and they just work and we can change them as we need to for like better things and okay, you know, do, do you keep the data from this photo app? Does it move our others? Oh, well, the platform can actually help by having some of those things come down to a common layer. I mean, the vision for this, I think, is pretty clear. The work to execute it inside the B2B or just largely enterprise tech stacks, we've got a long way to go, but I think we can get there. Optimist that I am. One question over here, um, Alex Buckles. Uh, you mentioned having so many different partners in the HubSpot ecosystem, right? And you have these wildly awesome integrations and I'm sure you have hundreds of better together stories with each of these partners. And how do you, I guess, or what's the most effective way to get your, your sellers in the field to understand those better together stories at scale? Because they can't possibly know all of them. And then the second part of that is, how do you get them to then tell that story together in a co-selling motion with their partners effectively? Yeah, and I will say this is a journey we are on. I look at it as kind of a pull and push model. I mean, salespeople, whew, statement earlier about salespeople, you know, like becoming in some ways almost these independent agencies that aggregate stuff. I think that is a great question to think about because salespeople really are the ones who are pulling together a lot of these solutions, not the pieces, but the solutions for customers. But that being said, whew, I mean, Sales is a busy life and uh, they do not have time to like sit in a seminar and like, we'd like to go through a detailed demonstration of every one of these 1200 products. Not that I haven't tried. So we kind of look at it as two ways of like, okay, part of it is there are a certain amount of push we can do, you know, and when there are particular partnerships that seem they're especially relevant to certain segments, you know, of our business, you know, we will connect those sessions and enablement sales town halls and whatnot with our sales team. More importantly, though, we're getting much better at pulling together the sort of on-demand enablement content. And very often those sales town halls that maybe do three or four products that will walk people through in detail in a given month, it actually becomes a mechanism for us to reinforce that, oh, anytime you have a question from any customer about a certain capability or certain integration, you can come here to this marketplace. You can find the options here inside our internal sales enablement platform. We have much more details. We have the contacts. We can put you in place put you in touch with, uh, you know, those right partners. And that motion is actually now starting to make that consumable. I will say one other thing super excited about, I just want to give a shout out because I know they're ex exhibiting here, is Crossbeam. <laughs> it's a friggin' work of genius, right? I mean, like being able to uh, basically, uh, you know, take a look for two individual companies, you know, where the relative opportunity is, and then start to be able to uh, strategize, you know, on how to go after that together. Again, I think this is just the case that this is one more case where this explosive ecosystem has a whole bunch of challenges and problems, but software and business models and new ideas are being created to address and solve those problems. And so I'm, that's why I'm pretty bullish that, yeah, in the end, this is actually going to be a feature and not a bug. Thank you so much. 
If you like this and want more great insights on software partnerships, you've got to rate, like, and subscribe and join us at thecloudsoftwareassociation.com. Thank you as always to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. We'll see you on the next episode.